I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our fighting power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. It's good to be back. Hello, everyone. Yes, it's been a year, but uh, here's another episode. Thanks to everyone who reached out with words of encouragement or words of complaint. Either way, both helped to uh, get me back on track to producing more episodes, so I appreciate it. Also, special shout-out, thanks to the guys at My First Million, uh, which is a, a big business podcast that shouted out the podcast. Sam Parr, one of the hosts there, is a big fan, and uh, thanks, Sam, and, and welcome to everyone who got turned on to the podcast that way. Uh, the other co-host of My First Million, who will go unnamed, I'm, uh, I'm not shouting you out until you listen to an episode. He, he said he hasn't listened yet. So yeah, if you want to shout out, uh, get on it. For this next series, I'm going to be talking about someone who needs no introduction, Alexander the Great. But on this first episode, I'm going to be talking about someone who does need a little introduction, and that's his father, Philip II of Macedon. And you'll see in the title of this episode that I have dubbed him Philip the Great. Why is that? Uh, no, no one calls him that, but I think he should be called Philip the Great. And the reason for that is I, I want to give a little analogy. I want you to think back to the movie Iron Man, if you've seen it. And in the first Iron Man movie, Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., is a playboy billionaire who owns a major weapons manufacturer. He's a genius-level engineer who can build these incredible weapons. And at the beginning of the first movie, he's captured by terrorists and basically enslaved and forced to build a bomb for them in this little cave in Afghanistan. He's got one assistant to help him, a guy, a fellow slave by the name of Yinsen. Well, unbeknownst to the terrorists, he's also building a super suit, the first Iron Man suit, because, you know, Tony Stark is this genius and he's able to build it in a cave with nothing but scrap metal and spare parts. And at the ver very end, his assistant Yinsen dies. And Tony uses his Iron Man suit to blast his way out, kill the terrorists, and escape his imprisonment. Okay, so I want you to imagine this scenario, but with one small difference. Imagine that Tony Stark builds the suit from scrap metal and spare parts, but then he's the one who's killed, and his assistant Yinsen uses the suit to blast his way out and escape. In that scenario, Who's the real hero? The guy who built the super suit from scratch in a cave or the guy who just used it? And so obviously, you know, I think everyone would agree that the major achievement is, is building a super Iron Man suit out of scrap metal. And in this analogy, Philip is Tony Stark and Alexander the Great is Yinsen. Philip takes Macedon, a small backwater kingdom that's just nobody. It's constantly invaded, raided, controlled by its neighbors, and he turns it into the dominant regional power. He takes over Greece, essentially. He draws up plans for an invasion of Persia, the largest empire on earth. He builds the army to invade Persia. He sends an expeditionary force, gets everything ready and prepared for the invasion, and then he dies. And then his son Alexander is the one who actually conducts the invasion and establishes the largest empire the world had ever seen. Spoiler alert, sorry if you didn't know what Alexander did. But I think that Philip is undercredited as the mastermind of this entire thing. So anyway, I'm not trying to take anything away from Alexander, but I think his father, Philip, also deserves credit for being a truly great conqueror and statesman in his own right. So let's jump into his story, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of How to Take Over the World is brought to you by Taft. As you study the lives of these great historical figures, you start to pick up on little similarities. Some of them are really obvious, like that these are all very intelligent and hardworking people, but other similarities seem rather odd. 
And one of those odd similarities is the way they dress. They all seem to adopt the prevailing fashion, but with just a little bit of flair to make them stand out from the crowd. Julius Caesar had his fringe on his toga, Alexander the Great wore Medusa on his breastplate, and of course Steve Jobs wore his famous mock neck shirt. Well, I reached out to Taft to be a sponsor of today's show because they fit into that tradition perfectly. Taft is a men's footwear brand that specializes in boots and shoes. They take shoes with a very classic and timeless look and mix up the design just a little bit and give their shoes enough flair to stand out in a really cool way. All their boots and shoes are handcrafted in Europe. They're incredibly well-made. They're super comfortable. They last forever, and you'll look great. I wear my Taft boots all the time, and they look and feel incredible. So head over to taftclothing.com and use the code HOWTO10 for 10% off your order of any fully priced boot, shoe, or sneaker. Again, you'll really love them. Wear the shoes that Caesar or Alexander the Great would wear if they were alive. Go to taftclothing.com and use code HOWTO10. So to start off with, where did Philip come from and how did he rise to power? Philip was born a prince of Macedon or Macedonia. I'll mostly say Macedon, but if I slip up and say Macedonia, they mean the same thing. Macedon is a region that mostly lies in the far north of what is the modern country of Greece and partly in the country of what is now called Northern Macedonia. Pella, the city where Philip was born, is in modern day Greece. And Macedon had this sort of weird relationship with Greece. It existed on the periphery of the Greek world Macedonians sort of considered themselves Greeks, and Greeks definitely did not consider Macedonians to be so. The Macedonian language was extremely closely related to Greek, could really even be called a dialect of Greek. It was mostly mutually intelligible, sort of like Spanish and Portuguese, probably actually even a little more similar, maybe um, something more like Spanish and Portuguese, you know, three or 400 years ago. They did have claims of common descent with the Greeks. They worshiped the same gods as the Greeks, but they culturally had some significant differences with the Greeks. They were less developed, less wealthy. Uh, one of the main things that separated Macedonians was that they didn't have city-states. They had many towns and urban areas, even a few cities, but they didn't center their identities on these city-states, what the Greeks called polises. The Macedonians were more tribal and tended to place more emphasis on their family or bloodline. So anyway, they were kind of Greek, but the Greeks viewed them as these sort of uneducated, unrefined, barbaric semi-Greeks. And Macedonians looked at the Greeks as effete, decadent degenerates. That, that's maybe an overly negative view of it. Uh, it wasn't all bad blood. There was definitely some mutual admiration, especially from the Macedonians, who really admired many aspects of Greek culture and art and music and, and all of that. Now, Philip is born a prince of Macedon, so that means uh, a life of good living and luxury, right? He, he's, he's royalty. Well, yes and no. He's nobility, so yes, he spends most of the time feasting, hunting, and making war rather than farming or working in manual labor. But Macedon was a very rough-and-tumble place, and the Macedonian kings were not exempt from that rough-and-tumble nature, and they almost never met peaceful ends. I mean, here are the names and manner of death of the eight kings of Macedon before Philip. First, we have a king who consolidated and basically founded Macedonia, a guy named Alexander I. He is assassinated, and the kingdom is taken over by his son Perdiccas II. Perdiccas II is assassinated by his illegitimate son Archelaus, who takes over as king before he is assassinated by his friend and lover. There's a big civil war, and a guy named Amintas III comes out as king. His wife tries to poison him, but he survives, actually, and manages to die of old age. Yay, congrats to Amintas, the one guy who doesn't get killed. He is succeeded by his son, Alexander II, but he is, yep, you guessed it, assassinated by his son, Ptolemy, who is, say it with me, assassinated by Philip's older brother, Perdiccas, who takes over and manages to not get assassinated. 
but only by dying in battle. So you get the idea of the rough lifestyle these people lived. The Macedonians were still kind of wild, and that included the nobility. This was at a time when it was still expected that kings and generals would actually get their hands dirty and swing their swords in battle, often in the front lines, and not just command from the back. And it was a time when assassination was obviously, as we just saw, a very common and almost sort of accepted tool of regime change. The Macedonian kings of this era were all from this one family uh, called the Argiad dynasty. Every Macedonian king was an Argiad, uh, with no exceptions, and no one really even tried or challenged this rule. We're not quite sure why this one dynasty had such a hold on the public imagination that everyone just sort of accepted that they should be the kings. They did claim to be of Greek descent. Their origin story is that they were descended from an aristocrat from the city of Argos, a descendant of Hercules, a very illustrious guy who conquered Macedon. But, you know, those kind of stories were common in those days. But, you know, for whatever reason, everyone agreed that the king should be an Argiad. But their unchallenged status as kings of Macedon didn't bring with it a tradition of stability, as you might have noticed. And that's because while the Argiads were unchallenged as kings, any Argiad could be king. Uh, there doesn't appear to have been a very fixed succession rule. If you were the eldest son of the past king, and you were a competent leader of, you know, whole mind and whole body, then you'd probably be in pole position, but a cousin or a half-brother could always swoop in if you weren't careful. And the Argiads were polygamous, or at least the kings were polygamous, so there were always plenty of men to vie for the throne. So they had multiple wives, they fought in the front lines of their battles, and when you hear about their exploits, you get the impression that these Argiads were just this crazy, hard-drinking uh, bunch of men who liked women, gambling, and fighting. And Macedon was the kind of violent, wild place where that type of person could thrive. It was said that a Macedonian boy wasn't allowed to recline at dinner with the adults until he had killed a boar without the use of a net, just with a spear. So strength, capacity for violence, vitality, the ability to drink large quantities of alcohol, all of these things were highly valued in Macedon. It was the land of the chads. And uh, Philip grows up in this environment and definitely takes on many Macedonian attributes. But when he's 12, he also gets the chance to get a first-rate education. There's a peace treaty that's forced on Macedon, and as part of it, Philip, the younger brother of the king, is sent to be a hostage in the city-state of Thebes. The idea of hostages in the ancient sense is something that is foreign to us now. When we think of hostages, um, we probably think of like a terrorist holding someone in a camp, threatening to cut off their finger unless you send them $10,000 by Saturday or whatever. Hostage taking in the pre-modern world was nothing like that. It was something very different. The hostage taker would treat the hostage like a member of their household to be raised and educated and would be sent back home once they reached adulthood. They were treated very well and encouraged to befriend the children of the household. So there is this catch though, which is that there's an implicit threat that if the family of the hostage acts up, the hostage will be executed. So it has this weird dual purpose. On the one hand, it ensures good behavior because you'll kill the hostage if their family crosses you. And on the other hand, it was supposed to foster friendships because the children of one state are growing up with and being educated with the children of another. It's like the world's weirdest summer camp is the only thing I can uh, think to compare it to. Learn important life lessons, make friendships that will last a lifetime, maybe get executed at the end. Try not to focus on that. It'll be great. But luckily for Philip, he is not executed and even more lucky for him, he's raised in Thebes, which is the preeminent military power in Greece at the time. And not only that, but he's housed, educated, and raised by a man named Pamenes, who was a military leader, and who was very close with a guy named Epaminondas, who was the star general of the time, not only in Thebes, but of the entire Greek world. Macedonia had been a backwater, a semi-civilized frontier territory, 
But now here's Philip getting a military education from the very best of the business. We don't know for certain that he learned directly from Epimenondas, but it seems plausible. And certainly at the very least, he was able to observe firsthand how the Theban army functioned and was organized. So he's in Thebes from age 12 to about age 17 or 18. And I have to point out that this is a pattern for tons of, of great conquerors and achievers. They're half outsiders, half insiders. So think about Napoleon. He's a well-to-do, card-carrying French aristocrat, right? No one can challenge his status as of officially noble blood. So he is half insider. But he's also a Corsican. He's, he speaks an Italian dialect as his first language. He always speaks French with an accent. So he's definitely half outsider. Or think about Steve Jobs. He's literally raised in Silicon Valley and interns for Hewlett Packard, the quintessential Silicon Valley company as a high schooler. Definitely an insider. But he's also adopted, biologically the son of a Syrian immigrant. And for that reason, always felt like a little bit of an outsider. These people are insiders enough to have access to the resources and education of the dominant system, but outsiders enough that they aren't caught up in the same way of thinking as everyone else who came before them. And Philip fits that mold perfectly. He's a semi-barbarian Macedonian who's being educated by one of the preeminent military powers in Greece, and therefore in the world. Half insider, half outsider. Now when Philip reaches adulthood, and his time as a hostage comes to an end, he goes back to Macedon and is given command of some eastern regions by his brother Perdiccas, the king of Macedon. Philip administers these regions capably, or so we think. Frankly, there just aren't a ton of records about this part of Philip's life. But that all changes a few years later when Perdiccas leads a third of the Macedonian army against a tribal people called the Illyrians. The battle is a complete disaster. Perdiccas is killed and his army is completely wiped out. And the Illyrians follow this up by invading Macedon and raiding and looting at will. It's total chaos for, for a series of weeks. Perdiccas's son is only a boy and with the Illyrians running amok, the Macedonians know they need a strong king now. So Philip steps forward and seizes the throne and is proclaimed king by the army. He's only 22 or perhaps 23 when he becomes king. To say that Philip's rule was precarious at the beginning would be a huge understatement. The Illyrians are raiding and plundering and the Paeonians, another Western barbarian people, see this chaos and figure, hey, we want a piece of the spoils. We want some of that action. So they also start raiding Macedon. Another tribal people, these ones on the Eastern side of Macedon see the situation and they want a piece too. Uh, they're a little more organized and civilized than the Illyrians and Paeonians. So they get a puppet, a half-brother of Philip's, who they're hoping to install on the throne. And the Greek city-state Athens does the same thing. They dig up a half-brother Argead, who they're going to try and sit on the throne to be their puppet. So you've got all these vultures circling because they can feel that the whole Macedonian kingdom might just collapse. A third of their army is destroyed. There's this brand new king who no one really knows. He's only been in the country for five years. He grew up in Thebes and foreign pillagers are running amok and raiding towns at will. So in most people's minds, Philip is a dead man walking. But Philip is, you know, obviously not your average king. He springs into action. The first thing he does is execute a rival claimant, one of his half-brothers, and force two other claimants to escape into exile, the ones backed by Athens and Thrace. And then luckily, uh, he gets a breather. It was the practice at the time for everyone to basically go home for winter. In classical societies, the vast, vast majority of these people were not professional soldiers. They were mostly farmers, or in the case of barbarians like the Illyrians and Paeonians, herdsmen and fishermen. So they needed to go home, tend to their affairs, you know, fall harvest, spring planting, all of that. So over autumn and winter of 360 BC, all these raiders go home, and Philip has time to reorganize and prepare for these numerous pending invasions. 
The situation was bleak, but at least he had a chance to organize. So the first task for Philip is to rally the people of Macedonia behind him. He's getting ready to go four-on-one, Macedonia against Thrace, Athens, Illyria, and Paeonia. But first, he has to make sure he even has the one. Because if you're a Macedonian noble with a few villages and a few hundred soldiers behind you, nothing about this situation is screaming, let's get behind Philip and support him. He doesn't necessarily seem like the safe bet. But Philip goes on a charm offensive. He's going around to the parties, shaking hands, kissing babies, showing off how smart and intelligent and clever he is. Uh, in the words of the ancient Greek historian Diodorus, he says, quote, bringing together the Macedonians in a series of assemblies and exhorting them with eloquent speeches to be men. He was courteous and sought to win over the multitudes by his gifts and his promises. Okay, so a few things about that. Number one, by all accounts, Philip was extremely charismatic. He had this almost magical sway over people. They were immediately naturally drawn to him. Part of that might have been that he had the natural aspect of a leader. He was nearly six feet tall, which was very tall for the time, and was apparently quite handsome, which helps, obviously, when you're trying to charm people. Um, so Philip is giving gifts and making promises, as you might expect. You know, support me and I'll make you lord over such and such an area and give you these territories. But to me, the most interesting line in there is that he exhorted them to be men. He's challenging them, challenging their manhood. It reminds me a little bit of those old-timey explorer ads, you know, hazardous journey, low wages, safer turned doubtful, fame and glory in case of success. And I think that's a valuable lesson. So many times we think we can win people over by offering them things, and there is definitely some merit to that, but it can also be an effective tactic to be demanding. There are a lot of leaders who will, you know, try and stay in power by being nice to you and, and hoping for reciprocity. It's so easy to find leaders like that. There are a dime a dozen. It's much rarer to find a leader who you feel like will actually push you and lead you to do great things. A lot of times people will respect the leader who has high expectations, who pushes them, who challenges them. So Philip is trying both approaches. He's flattering, he's bribing, but he's also challenging and pushing. And as he's doing this, he's also training his army. In the winter of 360 BC, the army that would come to conquer the entire world starts to form. Philip has two problems to solve. On the one hand, He's going to have to fight these barbarians. They're generally bigger and stronger and more fearsome individual fighters than Macedonians, but they don't tend to fight as cohesive units. So you can deal with them, but you have to be very disciplined about it. The bigger problem to solve is the Greek infantry, the hoplites. The hoplites were the greatest heavy infantry in the world, and it's not particularly close. The Greek hoplites were essentially a heavily armed spearman. He would be wearing iron armor, including a breastplate, a helmet, and greaves for the shins. They also carried a round concave shield called the aspis, which weighed about 15 pounds. Their primary weapon was the doru. It was an 8 to 10 foot spear used for thrusting. Hoplites also carried a short sword for very close combat. They carried the shield on the left arm, and together with other hoplites around them, they would create a shield wall where, you know, their shield would mostly protect themselves, but also a little bit to the guys to the left and to the right of you. Hoplites were organized into groups called phalanx, which were eight to 10 rows deep. The back rows would place their shields on the backs of the soldiers in front of them and hold them in place. Meanwhile, the front ranks would push with their shields and also try to stab with their spears as much as possible or stab with the short sword if they were close enough to do that. At certain times, commanders would give a command to take a step forward and then the back rows would push with their shields and the whole weight of the phalanx, these eight to 10 men would push on the enemy, moving them backwards. This was called the Ophismos, and according to many of the ancient accounts, Greek armies would literally push each other off the battlefield. 
This is how one scholar described uh, the method of ancient warfare. He says, quote, battles of the late archaic and classical periods tended to follow the same script. The armies would line up. Someone elected as general would give a rousing speech followed by the sacrifice of a goat or a sheep to gain favors with the gods. Then both armies would charge each other. Then one phalanx would shove the other off the field. So Greek warfare was basically, you can think of it like a very stabby game of rugby. I actually think, if I remember correctly, there's a pretty good example of it in the movie Troy, where they do this, you know, they all yell together, and kind of push with their shields, push each other off, off the battlefield. In terms of other soldiers, Greek armies would typically have limited skirmishers who would throw spears before the phalanx rushed each other and engaged. And they would have some cavalry who protected the wings of their army. Greek armies were typically weak when it came to cavalry, uh, which is not terribly surprising, right? Greece is rocky country. It's very hilly, very mountainous. There aren't a lot of open fields or plains, the type of ground that cavalry succeed on. Uh, Macedon, by comparison, is much more open. And as a result, they had much better cavalry than the Greeks. So that was Philip's one advantage. But his big disadvantage was that his infantry were probably going to get smoked by these Greek hoplites. So he needed to come up with a tactic that neutralized the opposing infantry especially the Greek hoplites. And he can't just copy them because his infantry were not as well equipped as the Greeks. Hoplites were expected to furnish their own armor and weapons, and the average Macedonian soldier was not wealthy enough to afford the heavy armor of the hoplite. But over the winter of 360 BC, Philip trained his infantry in a new style of fighting, uh, something completely innovative that he kind of came up with himself. I'm sure he took inspiration from somewhere, but it's really not attested to as a major fighting style before Philip came up with it he issued his men with a new weapon, a long spear called a sarissa. This spear was 16 to 18 feet long and had a counterweight at the end so Macedonian soldiers could have most of the length out in front of them. If you imagine this little counterweight right behind them so that they have a full 16 feet of spear poking out in front of them. They had a shield, much smaller and lighter than the Greek aspis, that was strapped to their upper left arm. Now think about this if you're a Macedonian soldier and you face a hoplite one-on-one with your big two-armed pike that you're heaving around, right? He's going to run up to you, knock aside your big pike, and easily just come up and stab you with his shorter spear. But conversely, if you think about facing an entire formation of Macedonian soldiers with their sarissas, it was eight soldiers deep, and the first five ranks could all wield their spears out in front of the formation. The last three ranks would be resting and waiting and would have their spears kind of tilted upwards to try and block any any arrows or spears that might be thrown at them. But as you approach the Macedonians, you would literally have five ranks of spears stabbing at you before you could get to them. At least that was the idea, right? And remember, the Greek phalanx mostly relied on this othismos, this great unified push to win their battles. But to do that, you need your front line literally pressed up against the opposing front line with your shields essentially on the enemy. Greeks mostly fought each other, so they were usually shield to shield, trying to push each other off the battlefield. But the idea with the Sarissa is that if we can deploy enough spears, they'll never get close enough to be able to give us that big push. We'll just you know, be stabbing them to death. Uh, now, that sounds like a great strategy in practice, but these Sarissa formations take incredible discipline. It's really easy to get tangled up with other spears, so you need to walk in very strict, very tight formations. Turning or doing any maneuvers is extremely difficult, and you don't have great protection against arrows and other missiles, so you need to hold your ground and not run when other people are throwing spears at your face. So Philip spends all winter drilling and drilling his men until they're prepared to fight in these formations with their sarissas. This is a huge military innovation, but it's also a huge risk. No one had really tried this before. When the spring comes, 
you have this big buildup. Everyone's ready to charge in and, and take their piece of Macedon. But the first thing Philip does is buy off the Paeonians and the Thracians. They'd be back, but he needed time to deal with the Athenians. So Philip essentially pays them a bribe, and all of a sudden he has taken most of the barbarians off the table entirely. At the same time, this Athenian-supported pretender to the throne, a half-brother of Philip named Argeus, launches an invasion of Macedon. He's got a few disaffected Macedonians and a substantial force of Athenians. Now, the Athenians were primarily involved in Macedon because they wanted to control a city called Amphipolis, which Macedon also claimed some sovereignty over. So Philip publicly cedes any claim over Amphipolis, which greatly reduces the Athenian commitment to this guy, Argeus. Like, they have already committed to helping him, so they kind of give a half-hearted effort, but they're not really all in it because, well, if Macedon's not really even going to challenge our claim to Amphipolis, then who cares? So Argeus marches to the ancient capital of Macedon, a city called Aegea. Aegea? I think I'm pronouncing that right. But the Athenians mostly stay behind, right? They kind of split their forces and they send a little uh, troop of advisors with him. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a force. It's a, it's some soldiers, but not their full army. Um, they're not abandoning him. Again, they're not really going out of their way to support this guy. So Argeus, with the few Athenian troops who do come and his small Macedonian force, he declares himself king, and he's hoping that the common people of Macedon will rise up and support him. Uh, he's an Argead, he's got a claim, and he's got the support of Athens, so why not? You know, maybe people think, hey, this guy's got a shot. But the common folk want nothing to do with him, either because at this point they liked Philip, which I think is likely, right? He's gone on this charm offensive, or just because they thought Argeus's chances were slim. When he realizes that the people are not going to rise up to support him, he tries to get out of Dodge, he tries to leave Macedon, but Philip chases him down with astonishing speed. He can't believe how quickly Philip catches up to him. And in Philip's first battle against Greek hoplites, his Sarissa-wielding soldiers easily defeat a numerically inferior foe. He's magnanimous towards the Athenians, who he wants peace with, so he lets the surviving Athenian soldiers go home unharmed. Um, but his half-brother Argeus, he executes as well as any Macedonian traders who are with him. This rapid march would be something of a hallmark throughout his career. And it's one of the most obvious and most important connecting links of all these great conquerors and generals. They're different in many, many ways. Some were attacking generals, some were defensive generals, some relied on their artillery like Napoleon, some on their cavalry like Alexander, others on their infantry like Caesar. Some were tall, some were short, some were white, some were black. You know, they were different in a lot of different, different ways. But there is no such thing as a general who's a slow marcher. They all have that in common. Every single one of them moves fast. And I think the lesson of that, uh, or the takeaway there, is, is pretty obvious. And that's something I'm trying to remember and implement more. There are great generals who make lots of mistakes, but there is no such thing as a great general who moves slow. And I think that's true of, of entrepreneurs, of scientists, of artists. You cannot be great and move slow. In the aftermath of his victory, Athens quickly makes peace with Philip since he had promised to keep his hands off of Amphipolis. So Philip finally has an uneasy peace. There are no immediate threats to his kingdom. So hypothetically, he's got a moment to rest and relax. But the problem is that all the same powers are still waiting to pounce. All these tribal barbarians around Macedon had been bribed to not attack, but that can only last for so long before they invade again and ask for more tribute. So that rather than rest on his laurels and see what comes his way, Philip decides to go on the offensive. First, um, this kind of king-like figure, this leader of the Paeonian tribes, uh, he dies. So while they're disorganized, Philip invades and installs his own puppet as leader of Paeonia. 
The next year in 358 BC, Philip invades Illyria. The Macedonians had typically been afraid of the Illyrians, and were even more so now, because, well, for the first part, they're physically larger, uh, they were more barbaric, which is to say less settled, more warlike, and accustomed to combat. Uh, their diet uh, included more meat and fish, which tended to make the men bigger than the Macedonians, especially the common Macedonians, who mostly subsided on wheat uh, and bread. And uh, the Illyrians, one of their chief tactics was to use their physical size and strength to intimidate and overwhelm their enemies before the battle even began. They would beat their chest, scream loudly, and mount this furious charge and scare off the opposing forces. And they were big, scary guys. This often worked. And we imagine, you know, this would have been particularly terrifying to the Macedonians who just a year before or two years before had, uh, had seen their king and a third of their army massacred by these Illyrians. So the Macedonians would have had this in their mind and they're thinking, man, do we, do we really want to go fight these guys when we don't have to? Do we want to march into Illyria and take the fight to them? But Philip convinces them, he's trained them, he's disciplined them, he's installed them with this mindset that we can do this. So they march in, they have this grueling battle. It's not an easy battle by any stretch of the imagination, but the Macedonians stay disciplined, they outlast the Illyrians and end up winning, killing thousands of Illyrians. And it's this crushing victory, total victory over the Illyrians. This is a big deal for Philip because Macedon had actually been partially under Illyrian occupation. Macedon could be divided into two areas, Upper Macedonia and Lower Macedonia. Lower Macedonia were fertile lowlands. Uh, most people in Lower Macedonia farmed and lived in villages. But then there was Upper Macedonia. It was up in the mountainous hill regions up north. It was still more of a wild place. Most people did not farm, but were rather herdsmen tending flocks of sheep and cattle. Their societies were still quite tribal and it was poor. Um, if Lower Macedonia was halfway between the civilized Greeks and the barbarians, then Upper Macedonia was halfway between Lower Macedonia and the barbarians, right? So it was just kind of a spectrum of barbarity, and Upper Macedonians were still a little bit more wild, a little bit different, and um, the Northern Macedonians had been under the domination of these other barbarians, under of the Illyrians, for quite some time. But with this victory, now all of Macedon was under Philip's control. Wanting to make the victory permanent, Philip takes an Illyrian wife, and then to make sure he maintains control over Upper Macedonia as well, he takes a second wife, this one from Upper Macedonia. So he takes two wives uh, at the same time. He also cements his victories in other ways. He builds fortified cities in Upper Macedonia to protect them from future Illyrian incursions. And he populates these cities with some Upper Macedonians from the hills, uh, makes them farmers and, and puts them in cities. But he also takes some Lower Macedonians and has them settle in these cities. He also does kind of the inverse. He takes some of the nobility, some of the tribal leaders from Upper Macedonia, and he brings them to Pella, where his court is, and makes them some of his chief officers and advisors. Um, so this kind of ensures that he's kind of mixing up all of Macedonian society, kind of homogenizing it, um, destroying these old villages, old bloodlines. He's moving people around so that they would all kind of be reliant on him. Now there's different power structures, and it all points to Pella. It all points to Philip. And again, this is another hallmark of Philip. He knew how to win wars. He was a great tactical battle leader, but perhaps even more impressively, he knew how to win the peace, so to speak. He knew how to create a new situation that wouldn't just go back to the way it was once he'd won the battle, but that would be, you know, permanently advantageous to him. So in just a couple of years, Philip has secured his throne and his kingdom. In 356 BC, we get the first hint that he might also have bigger ambitions. He once again takes two new wives, this time they're from the two leading families of the two most prominent and important city-states in the Greek region of Thessaly. This is interesting because 
All these marriages are meant as political arrangements. So these new wives show that he's starting to shift the focus towards Greece. He's thinking about Northern Greece uh, and, and what he can do there. And then by 357 BC, Philip takes his fifth wife, Olympias from Epirus. Uh, she was the daughter of one of the late kings of one of the tribes there. Again, this is a nearby region that could be prone to raiding Macedon. So this marriage was also likely politically motivated. According to Plutarch, her real name was Polyxena, Olympias being a nickname. She was Philip's most famous wife because she mothered Alexander the Great. And we'll talk more about Olympias in the next episode. Plutarch relays the story that Philip and Olympias actually met and fell in love as teens when they were both being initiated into some religious ceremony. Most scholars reject this as probably a, you know, a romantic invention, but uh, who knows? I mean, it could be true. The marriage was certainly politically expedient, but that doesn't mean there wasn't also a romantic component. doesn't mean that Olympias and Philip weren't young, hot people. Um, it certainly was a productive marriage as Olympias bore a son, Alexander, just a year later in 356 BC. Um, but to go back to the military campaigns, in early 357 BC, Philip reneges on his promise to Athens to respect the independence of Amphipolis and declares war on the city, citing that the people there were, quote, ill-disposed toward him and offered many pretexts for war. Um, I love that. In other words, you guys have given me so many good reasons to go to war with you guys, I'm not even going to list them all. You know, So you, you can read between the lines there that maybe he couldn't quite think of one good reason. So he just said, you guys are so rotten, I don't even have to say why I'm going to war with you. Amphipolis was not particularly large or powerful in terms of their military, but they were a very important port for trading goods to and from Macedon. Um, and not just Macedon, but Thrace and other European regions as well. A number of wars had actually been fought over the city uh, for that reason, to, to control the trade going in and out of there, including between Athens and Sparta. The fact that Philip was willing to make this aggressive move reflected two facts. One, that he was feeling much more powerful and secure. And second, that Athens was tied up fighting wars in southern Greece, and he knew they wouldn't really be able to contest him. But even without Athenian support, taking Amphipolis was a daunting task. What it lacked in size and manpower, Amphipolis made up for with very stout natural and man-made defenses. Others had tried to put it to siege numerous times, and no one had ever succeeded. It was a coastal city with great access to the sea, and the usual approach had been to try to blockade it for long periods of time to try and starve the city, but this never worked just because it had so many access points. Philip, instead of trying to blockade it, opts for an aggressive siege with numerous assaults and heavy use of siege engines to break down the city walls. The citizens of Amphipolis appeal to Athens to come save them, but the Athenians, who as I mentioned were already fighting in another war, are unable to come, and eventually Philip takes the city through sheer grit and slow, steady, determined effort. He brings the city into the Macedonian kingdom, and of course, once again, introduces Macedonian settlers to make sure that the city remains loyal to him over time. Later that same summer, Philip takes another coastal city, this one called Pydna. It had actually been controlled by Athens, so at this point, they officially declare war on Philip, but because they're still involved in, in this other conflict, it's just an empty threat, and they don't send any forces to actually deal with it. But late in the summer of 357 BC, things start to get more serious. With these marriages in Thessaly and taking these numerous cities, his neighbors start to realize that Philip is serious about local expansion and control. Before, you can imagine his neighbors, and especially the Greeks, kind of thinking, okay, look at this cute little novelty. Macedon is throwing around their weight for once. Cute job, little Philip. But after Philip takes Amphipolis and Pydna back to back, it becomes less cute. People start taking him seriously, and uh, not necessarily in a good way for Philip. 
Three kings from Thrace, Paeonia, and Illyria form a triple alliance to attack Macedon, and at the same time, the Athenians begin courting a group of city-states called the Chalcedian League to help them actually launch an attack on Philip. So it appears that Philip has maybe overplayed his hand a little. He's got some extraterritorial gains, sure, but in many ways he's back to where he was at square one. He is once again surrounded by multiple enemies on every side who threaten to overwhelm him. And this is what I love about Philip. He always has the same response to these types of situations. He doesn't draw up some grand campaign. He doesn't try to respond to all the threats at the same time. He doesn't make some big gesture. He just starts quietly handling each problem one at a time, always being pragmatic. He makes concessions where he needs to, but he just solves the problems one at a time in the lowest drama way possible. In this instance, he does this by first going to the Chalcedian League and saying, look, Athens isn't actually going to be doing any fighting. They're otherwise preoccupied. So how about instead of us slugging it out, I'll just give you a couple cities and we call it a day. And they think this sounds pretty good. They get something for nothing, so they agree. This frees up the rest of the army to march into Illyria and score a big victory against the Illyrians. And when the other two kings see this, they think twice about this alliance and the whole thing kind of fizzles. And just like that, Philip quickly escapes the dire straits that he was in. The thing I think about when I see this is that problems compound, right? If you're starting a business and you have a cash flow problem, then that can cause a talent problem because you can't pay enough for the right employees. And that creates a product problem, which creates a marketing and sales problem, which reinforces the financial problem and so on and so forth. Problems compound. I think we all realize that we've, you know, I, I at least have had that problem before of things spinning out of control, right? Problems causing more problems. But I think what's important to realize is that the inverse is true, that solutions compound as well. In other words, if what started as a cash flow problem is now a talent and sales and marketing and operations problem and everything else, then solving just one of those things will also help alleviate all the other problems as well. And that's what Philip does so well. He doesn't get overwhelmed by his problems. He just tackles them one at a time, knowing that solving one problem will also help alleviate the others. Around this time, Philip also receives a very convenient request from a city called Crenides. They are tired of being occupied by the Thracians, so Philip comes, kicks out the Thracians, settles some Macedonians, and renames the city Philippi in honor of himself. This is the city that the Apostle Paul would write a letter to that would get immortalized in the Bible as Philippians. For his next move in 354 BC, Philip takes the city of Methany. They were another important port and another strong ally of Athens, who once again is too preoccupied to help. Philip does take the city, but it's very costly to him personally. Um, he's shot in the eye with an arrow and loses an eye. I should mention that Philip was not a behind-the-scenes general, right? Like most Macedonian generals, he was actually in combat, swinging his sword. He suffered numerous serious injuries throughout his military career, including a lost eye, broken ribs, uh, a broken collarbone, and a spear through the leg that gave him a permanent limp. So this, uh, this lost eye is just the first of what would be many, many injuries throughout his career. And uh, <laughs> I kind of like to imagine him as this kind of pirate-like figure, right? Walking around with a limp and one eye and all these broken bones and this tough, grizzled guy who'd actually seen wars, actually killed people with his bare hands. That's the kind of guy Philip was. With the conquest of Methany, Philip was now the master of the entire coastline of what is now northern Greece. The area was important because it had major silver, gold, and iron mines, so he was filling his coffers on that and minting new coins. But also Greece had pretty extensive trade with Europe at the time. They traded with the Macedonians, various Celtic tribes, with the Thracians, the Scythians, maybe even some lower down Germanic tribes. And now most of that trade had to go through Macedonian controlled ports. And Philip is able to levy some big taxes on all that trade to produce an enormous amount of income for himself. 
This allows Philip to professionalize the army and give them wages so they no longer need to go home during the winter to tend to their farms. They can just drill and practice and improve all year long. It also allows him to hire foreign mercenaries who can bolster his army, especially siege engineers who can help him think of new ways to breach city defenses. In fact, he plows so much money back into his army that he basically collects no surplus. It gets to the point that even though he's got all this new income, he's struggling to make payments on time to his soldiers. He was fond of telling a story about a time when he was wrestling a man, a foreigner named Menegetes, um, and some soldiers come to see him about their late wages. Philip finishes his wrestling match, runs to the soldiers, still sweating, and says, You're right, comrades. I have been practicing with this barbarian in order to thank you properly for the credit you have extended to me. And then runs past them, dives into a pool, and starts swimming laps until they leave bored and confused. He thought this was a very clever way to avoid paying wages, and it tells you something about Macedonian culture that he told this story many times with pride. And I think that story is very emblematic of Philip's personality. In the land of the Chads, he was the head Chad, the chattiest of the Chads, right? He's the alpha, the tallest, the smartest, the most handsome, the most charming. And he knows it. When you read about Philip, he just oozes this self-confidence, uh, mostly in a good way. He doesn't really feel the need to punish his enemies super harshly. He's very polite. He's like, um, if you ever go to the gym and you ask the biggest guy there for help, how to use a machine or something like that, just like you find some completely jacked guy who weighs 250 pounds, pure muscle. You can tell he just lives at the gym. That guy is actually almost always super polite and helpful to you because uh, he's not threatened by you, an amateur lifter. He's got nothing to prove. And Philip is very much that way. He's so self-confident that he is the smartest and the most charismatic man in the room that he's polite, he's social, he's forgiving, he's gracious, he's funny. Uh, he doesn't feel the need to prove he's always the best. He honestly sounds like he'd just, he'd be a great hang. Um, so in 354 BC, Philip is 28. He's doubled the size of his kingdom. He's made Macedon insanely wealthy, seriously upgraded his army, and taken it from a picked on and looted backwater to one of the most dominant forces in the region. And he's got five wives and numerous children, so he's already accomplished a lot and things are looking good for him. But it's important to remember that at this point, Philip might be the master of the European region just north of Greece, but he's still essentially a non-entity in the Greek world. And that's where his one good eye would turn. In 353 BC, Philip was in Thrace near Gallipoli on the eastern border of Macedon in a rather minor engagement when he received word that war had broken out in Thessaly. 500 miles away on the southwestern border of Macedon. The conflict was between the city-states of Larissa and Ferrai. Philip had married a woman from each city-state, but Larissa was a longer-standing ally of Macedon's, and they appealed to Philip for help. He agreed to support them, but there's an issue. It's too far to march and make it in time to be of any help, so the logical thing to do is to sail his army to Thessaly, but Athens was allied with Ferrai, and Athens was still technically at war with Macedon, and the Athenian navy had come up to block any possible sea route to the engagement. And this is one of those incidents where we see the true character of Philip come out. Because the easy thing to do would be to simply give up. It's not your territory anyway, it's just an ally. You can always say, you know, guys, I would have loved to have helped, but it just wasn't possible. But that's not what he does. It's just not in his nature to do that, right? So he does something clever. He's got a very small navy, just enough to guard his transport ships to ferry his troops around. So he sends out his four fastest warships and moves all of his fastest rowers to those ships. Philip basically sends them out as bait, and once they're spotted by the Athenian navy, they sail away as fast as possible, and the Athenians give chase, leaving the path clear for Philip and his men to sail right through on the transport ships. 
Unfortunately, once Philip does get to Thessaly, he's soundly beaten twice. The army he's fighting is from a city-state called Phocis, uh, who were allies of Pharai, and they use a false retreat to lure Philip's troops in and attack them with catapults. It's a moment of momentary danger for Philip. It's his first major defeat, and he knows that he can't leave it unanswered. So in the next summer, in 352 BC, Philip returns to Thessaly, and this time with overwhelming force. He meets the same general who had defeated him the previous year, and this time he scores a resounding victory. This was part of something called the Third Sacred War. It's a long story, but the whole conflict started over a city-state that had supposedly illegally stolen sacred funds from the Temple of Apollo in Delphi. And so Philip is supposedly fighting to uh, avenge the honor of this Temple of Apollo, Obviously, there is a big component of trying to project his power into Thessaly, but there's this religious reason as well, and he never wants to pass up an opportunity for a good bit of propaganda. So he gives his men laurel wreaths to wear over their helmets before this battle. The laurel wreath was a symbol of Apollo, so he's basically showing that he's this pious guy, a righteous crusader. And, um, you know, according to the sources, this gave his men a lot of confidence going into the battles, one of the reasons that they won. To our cynical postmodern minds, that might seem cheesy, right? Oh, we're going to dress up like gods and that'll give our men confidence. But, you know, all the ancient sources think it was a brilliant move. So I think it's fair to say that it did give his men some some boost, some benefit. Of course, just because he's fighting on behalf of the gods, that doesn't stop Philip from uh, from wetting his beak a little bit. After the victory, he takes a few cities in Thessaly and incorporates them into his kingdom. And his ecstatic allies from Larissa who are now the undisputed power in Thessaly, declare him Archon of Thessaly. And Archon basically meant that he was technically the supreme commander of armed forces in Thessaly. It's a pretty big deal. It now means that in this region of Greece, he can call on all their soldiers whenever he wants to come fight his wars. He also tries to move south to see if he can finish the war, but he's blocked at the Pass of Thermopylae which is a famously narrow pass in Greece. It's the place where, if you've seen the movie 300, it's where the 300 Spartans held off the entire Persian army. Philip decides it's not worth the damage his army would suffer to attack the pass, so he withdraws, and the sacred war grinds on indecisively. For the next six years, there's not a ton of action. Um, every summer, Philip is going to war against some local tribe, um, some local you know, barbarians, or, or taking some minor city at the edges of the sacred war, but nothing major for the next six years. But there is a lot of attention on Macedon now because they are technically still the beating heart, the central player on one side of the sacred war, and Athens is the other. Neither of these cities are the chief instigator of this third sacred war. Uh, that's the small city-state of Phocis, but since they're the most powerful power on each side, their honor is at stake in the outcome. Neither Macedon nor Athens attacked each other directly during this time. They're kind of just circling each other to see what happens. The problem was that Athens didn't have the military power to march into Macedon and attack, and Philip didn't have the naval power to sail down to Athens and attack, so it was just a, a long, ongoing stalemate. Uh, some Athenians don't take it all that seriously. They think it's fine that they're in the stalemate, uh, this kind of holding pattern, and, and don't feel the need to actually attack Philip. But there are others who are constantly agitating against him and, and want to attack him. They're led by the famous orator Demosthenes. Uh, he's known as one of the greatest speakers and statesmen of all time, and the main topic of his activism was opposing Philip. He believed that Philip had to be opposed absolutely. Uh, one such surviving quote uh, reads, quote, Men of Athens, I want you to know and realize the restless activity which is ingrained in Philip's nature. Seriously, is anyone here so foolish as not to see that our negligence will transfer the war from Chalcedice to Attica? 
by the way, I pointed this out before, uh, that the great ones all have this insane energy. And I love that that's the one thing that Demosthenes calls out. I want you to know and realize the restless activity, which is ingrained in Philip's nature. That's a great way to phrase it. These people are just always in motion and it's ingrained in their very nature. Demosthenes was a real pain for Philip, uh, but in many ways he was correct about him. In 348 BC, Philip defeats the Athenian allies in the Chalcedian League, and in 346 BC, Philip decides that the sacred war has ground on for long enough, and he decides that he is going to fully commit to winning it. So he starts assembling his army to march south and defeat Phocis, which again was the city that had caused this whole sacred war by pillaging sacred funds from the Temple of Apollo. The Phocians themselves get scared by this, realize that the war is unwinnable, there's no way they can stand up to Philip, so they elect a government that favors unconditional peace. They essentially surrender in order to secure more favorable peace terms. Once this happens, the citizens of Athens start asking themselves if this is really the hill they want to die on. Do they really want to risk their necks fighting Philip in a war where the people that they're supposedly fighting for have already surrendered? Philip himself starts to make some peace overtures by unilaterally releasing Athenian prisoners. So the Athenians take this opportunity, send 10 ambassadors to discuss peace terms. When they get there, they are surprised to see other ambassadors from all the major powers, Thebes, Sparta, Thessaly, and others. It was a real sign of how far Philip had come that his court was really the place to be for all these ambassadors from these major city-states throughout Greece. I want to read Adrian Goldsworthy's account of Philip's behavior towards these Athenian ambassadors because I think it sheds a lot of light on his character. This is from the book Philip and Alexander, which I highly recommend, by the way. He says, quote, The Athenians were received with great courtesy and entertained lavishly. All ten had prepared speeches to be delivered in order of age and experience, and Philip listened with patience to them all, something that took at least several hours. One of them repeated the Athenian claim to Amphipolis. Demosthenes, as the youngest and most junior, spoke last. He was well known for the care with which he prepared and scripted any speech, not trusting himself to speak off the cuff, unless he could not avoid it. Others claimed Demosthenes had a fit of nerves, and after a bad start, dried up altogether. Philip is supposed to have shown sympathy, encouraging him to take his time and continue when he was ready. When they were summoned again, Philip spoke graciously, answering each argument in turn, often naming the orator in question. The king concluded with warm expressions of goodwill toward Athens. He agreed to send his own ambassadors to Athens to continue negotiations. So there you can get a, a feel for kind of the polite nature of Philip, right? He's very patient. This guy Demosthenes is railing on him all the time, but he just kind of says, you know, and Demosthenes is really struggling to, to give his speech and, and Philip is patient and says, hey, you know, take your time, man. It's all right. You know, if you, if you need a minute, you can have a minute, finish your speech. And uh, Demosthenes also said the king was praised for his looks, his drinking capacity, and memory. Another ambassador named Aschines added that he was well-mannered, generous, and eloquent. They both agreed that he was clever and cunning. Philip never passed up an opportunity to solve a conflict diplomatically when he could. You could tell he loved campaigning, he loved war, he did love battle, but he also loved diplomacy, and he preferred to solve conflicts diplomatically whenever possible, honestly, many times so that he could use his army to take on an even bigger conflict with even more glory, but, but still, he was a, a great diplomat. The Athenians agreed to a peace deal called the Peace of Philocrates that essentially confirmed things as they stood. Peace with no conditions. Which was a pretty big concession from Athens because it meant Philip got to hold on to Amphipolis, that important port city near Macedon. But it did come with a promise from Philip that he would cease all aggression toward Athens and her allies. With the Peace of Philocrates signed, Philip marched through Thermopylae, occupied Phocis, destroyed the city, resettled its citizens in smaller towns, 
and imposed a tax on them until they paid back the money they had taken from the Temple of Apollo. Also as part of the settlement for the war, Macedon was given leadership of the Amphistionic League, a collection of city-states in central coastal Greece, thus expanding Philip's sphere of influence even further into central Greece. This is another big propaganda coup for him. He has successfully portrayed himself as the defender of Apollo, and he's now known as a holy warrior, right, a, a pious man throughout all of Greece. And so at the end of this war in 346 BC, Philip was, you could say, the most powerful force in the Greek world at the age of only 40. He doesn't take a break to enjoy it, though. He immediately embarks on more reforms and settles more walled communities on his borders. The historian Justin said, uh, he had a great quote. He said, as shepherds drive their flocks, sometimes into winter, sometimes into summer pastures, so he transplanted people and cities. The next year, he campaigned against some Illyrian tribes, as he frequently did. This particular campaign is only notable because a blow from an Illyrian struck him and broke his collarbone. Also during this time, there are low-level conflicts between Athens and Macedon. The peace of Philocrates is still technically in effect, but you'll have situations where, let's say a democratic city-state has a civil war, and Macedonians pay mercenaries to fight on one side, and Athens pays mercenaries to fight on the other side, both hoping to install a government friendly to themselves. So, you know, there's some conflict involved, but no open war. In 341 or 340 BC, peace finally completely breaks down between Athens and Macedon. It comes to a boil over a region called Eastern Thrace. It was always an extremely sensitive area for the Athenians. If you look at a map of Turkey, we're talking about that little part of Turkey that is in Europe. Basically, Athens imported most of their wheat and a number of other raw materials from the Black Sea region. And so all those vital resources had to come through that narrow area where modern-day Istanbul is. At the time, the city was called Byzantium, and that little strait was called the Hellespont. And also through the Dardanelles, which is similarly a very narrow strait leading to the Black Sea. If someone were to control either of these choke points, they could easily block all of Athens' vital goods and essentially starve the city if they wanted to. Well, the trouble came in that this area was part of Thrace, as I said. And remember, the Thracians were neighbors of Macedon and a people that Philip had subdued and basically brought into his kingdom. So in 341 BC, you have a situation where Byzantium and some of her neighbors declare themselves opposed to Philip. So in 340 BC, Philip besieges Byzantium and a nearby city called Perinthus. When he does this, the Athenians smash the stone tablets that the peace of Philocrates was inscribed on and declare war on him. Demosthenes was as happy as a pig. He was finally getting his wish, and Athens was committing to war with Philip once again. The Macedonian sieges of Byzantium and Perinthus end in failure, but Philip does use the opportunity to strengthen his position with other surrounding communities in the area. And though he is at war now with Athens, Philip is in no rush to start fighting. He delays for a couple of years, during which time he attacks the Scythians, who are a tribe of northern barbarians, and once again just kind of campaigns around in nearby regions, securing his borders. It is during this time he receives a spear thrust that pierces his thigh, which nearly kills him and leaves Philip with a permanent limp. In 338 BC, Philip finally marches south into Greece. The proximate cause was involvement in another sacred war. The reasons for these squabbles are kind of unbelievable when you read about them. You know, you dedicated this trophy wrong, saying that we were allied with the Persians in this war, when really they just sent us money to stay neutral, or, you know, you guys farmed this land when it was supposed to belong to the Temple of Apollo. I guess we better fight about it. But Philip is marching against a city called Amphissa for one of these perceived slights against the gods. He once again gets blocked near Thermopylae, the same pass that is the gateway to southern Greece. So he camps out for a few days, then sends a message to one of his generals, saying that war has broken out in Thrace, and he can't get past Thermopylae anyway, so he's going to pack up and go back home. 
He makes sure that the message gets intercepted by his enemies. And uh, you get the impression that these Greek defenders at Thermopylae are not very bright because they read this and they say, okay, sounds legit to me, checks out 100%, let's all go home. And they immediately abandon the pass. So Philip easily marches through the pass at Thermopylae with little opposition, occupies Amphissa, and banishes those who offended the gods. That basically settles the fourth sacred war. And what's even more important, he is now just a few days march from Athens. And obviously the citizens of Athens are panicked when word reaches them that Philip is so close, they close the city gates, call an emergency session of the assembly, start running around like a chicken with their heads cut off the whole nine yards. So Macedon and Athens are sort of staring at each other, but neither of them is making a move because they're waiting on something. They're both waiting to see what Thebes will do. Thebes technically had been the ally of Macedon, but they didn't terribly want to see Macedon just totally knock out Athens and become masters of all of Greece, right? So both Philip and the Athenians are lobbying the Thebans to join their side. And so Athens and Philip are both waiting around to see what Thebes will do. Athens offers to foot the entire bill for naval operations, two-thirds of the army operations, and give supreme command to the Thebans and to give them dominion over the Boeotian League, which was a very important collection of city-states. Philip is unable to match that offer, so the Theban army links up with the Athenian army, and they both turn to face Philip. Philip and the allied Athenian and Theban armies dance around each other for a while, each trying to initiate battle on ground that is more favorable to themselves. You can kind of feel the nerves of the generals involved as they seek each other out, trying to get better ground, not wanting to risk an engagement on anything less than perfect conditions. They finally end up facing each other at the Battle of Chaeronea. This is one of the most critical battles in history. The fate of Greece is going to be decided in a single day. And yet we know very little about the battle. We know that Philip had around 30,000 men and an additional 2,000 cavalry. The Allied military was probably a little larger with around 35,000 men, including the elite 300 men of the Theban Sacred Band. This was an elite force of warriors, the most fierce and notorious fighting force in all of Greece at the time. Some claimed that the Sacred Band was made up of 150 pairs of lovers who fought all the harder because they were fighting for their partner, Historians, I think, mostly agree that this is probably untrue. I mean, if nothing else, logistically, that's very difficult to pull off. Um, it's probably a later Athenian invention. But the Theban band was extremely highly regarded as the most elite fighting force in Greece. We know that the Allies chose a place that abutted a river on one side, probably with the idea that they were doing this so that Philip couldn't outflank them with his superior cavalry. Diodorus says that Alexander commanded one flank of the army, and Philip commanded the other though he doesn't say which. In one tradition, the Macedonians are said to have conducted a false retreat and lured the allies into a less secure position. Another tradition states that Philip played it safe, trusting that a long, drawn-out battle would favor his professional soldiers over the citizen soldiers of Athens and Thebes. Potentially both are true. Um, all sources do seem to indicate that it was a long, drawn-out battle, with neither side breaking quickly and each side thinking at times that maybe they had victory within grasp. Plutarch says that Alexander basically won the battle by breaking through the Theban sacred band. However it happened, the allied line was eventually broken, the soldiers fled, and many were killed or captured. Um, about a thousand Athenians alone were killed and 2,000 captured, or about a third of their men, and uh, similar results for the Thebans and other allies. Demosthenes, who was a participant in the battle, threw aside his shield, which was embossed with gold lettering spelling out good fortune, and fled back to Athens. Oddly, at the site at the Battle of Caronea, there is a monument set up not only to the victors, 
but also to the defeated. It has been suggested that it was set up as a monument to the sacred band, who did not flee, but rather stood and died to the man. And this story seems at least somewhat plausible, as 255 corpses have been found beneath the monument, which is pretty close to the 300 men who are said to have composed the group. In any case, Philip had defeated the allied army of the Athenians and Thebans, and was now, for all intents and purposes, master of all of Greece. However, Philip was now on his way into a very interesting quagmire. Um, invading Greece in 350 BC was a little bit like invading Afghanistan today. It was completely ungovernable and a great way to lose blood and treasure. The Greeks were insanely independent. Their autonomy as city-states was very important to them. It was sacred, basically. And so if one city-state rose up to dominate for a while in Greece, most of the other city-states would ally together to defeat them. This created a permanent state of stasis, where no one could control Greece for long. Athens would be powerful for one generation, and then Thebes, and then Sparta, and then Corinth, and then back to Athens, and then back to Sparta. But always some grand alliance would put that leading city-state back in their place. Mere hours after the Battle of Chaeronea ended, word reached Athens and Thebes of the defeat, and the citizens flew into productive panic and began fortifying their city walls. By all appearances, they'd have no trouble recruiting other city-states into a grand alliance that would defy the dominance of Philip. He would have to expend years, probably, sieging Athens and Thebes and fighting all these other enemies just so that he could subdue Greece for a time. Uh, Philip had a quote. He said, I would rather be remembered as a good man for a long time than as a master for a short time. But this is where Philip shows his true genius. He doesn't declare himself king of all of Greece. Instead, he calls all of the Greek city-states together to a grand council at the city of Corinth. There, he makes a proposal. A grand league, the League of Corinth. All city-states in Greece are to be free and allied with one another. They're not to attack each other, interfere with free navigation, or attempt to control any other's internal affairs. Macedon was to be head of the League, but they would simply be first among equals. And then, Philip gets up and pulls a Steve Jobs. You can imagine the hush among the representatives as he lets them know there is one more thing. He proposes that the first act of the League of Corinth be to declare war on the largest empire in the world, a civilization more ancient and much more prosperous than the Greeks, the Persian Empire. Philip explains that with him at their head, they will field an army from every Greek city, 200,000 men strong, and they are going to smash the Persians, conquer their lands, and make themselves richer than they had ever imagined. The members of the League roar their approval, and the stage is set for one of the greatest military campaigns in all of history. By the way, you might be wondering what the pretext was for this invasion. Philip says that it is to punish them for destroying Greek shrines during the invasion of 480 and 479 BC. And by the way, that is 150 years previously. It's a little bit like if President Biden of the USA proposed a war against England for the burning of the capital in the War of 1812. It's, uh, it's kind of a flimsy justification. Everyone knows that the real justification is to unify all of these Greek city-states into a larger purpose and bring home some treasure and, and bring home some glory. In 337 BC, one of Philip's head generals, Parmenion, crosses into Asia Minor and the war with Persia is technically begun. This was an advance guard to clear the way and Philip planned to follow a year later with the full army. In the meantime, he needed to sort out the home front and make sure everything would be okay in his absence. With all the wives that Philip had married over the years, he had actually never taken a bride from Lower Macedonia, the core of his kingdom and his main power base. 
So in 337 BC, Philip marries again, this time to a girl named Cleopatra, which was a very common name at the time. And she belonged to an important aristocratic Macedonian family. She was the niece of Attalus, an important noble and general. And though it was a diplomatically very advantageous marriage, she was supposedly very beautiful as well. And uh, some sources say that Philip was, was quite smitten with her. The Macedonian nobility are thrilled at this turn of events, and none more so than Attalus, who proposes a toast at the wedding. He says, may the gods bless this union with a legitimate heir to the Macedonian throne. And this is a, obviously a very explosive thing to say with Alexander sitting right there. Alexander stands up, throws his cup at Attalus and says, are you calling me a bastard? Things look like they're going to come to violence when Philip stands up to intervene. He draws his sword, but he trips, probably due to his bad leg, and falls flat on his face. Alexander exclaims, Look, everyone, here is the man who is preparing to cross from Europe to Asia, but he cannot cross from one couch to another. So, you know, this is humiliating to Philip. Um, a really bad thing for Alexander to say. Who knows how much, you know, alcohol was flown through his blood at the time, probably at least a fair amount. But this was uh, a very stupid thing to say. Philip explodes, um, comes after him. Luckily, his friends and companions hold Philip back long enough that, um, that Alexander can escape. And Alexander flees not only the wedding, but Macedonia entirely. He and his mother flee to Epirus and take up residence with her family. It, it appears that this exact issue was something that Alexander was very concerned about. Adrian Goldsworthy described Alexander as impatient, quick-tempered, determined, and obsessively competitive. I think that's a good description. I would add very suspicious, uh, very suspicious of other people. Many ancient writers blame this on his mother, which seems possible, but it's also possible that it was inherent to Alexander. Uh, he certainly displayed a good deal of suspicion even when he was apart from his mother. Alexander was a carbon copy of his father in many ways, a perfect little mini-me. But one big difference was that while Philip was confident and comfortable in his own skin, Alexander was more suspicious and paranoid. Philip had tried to assuage this fear for Alexander. He'd commissioned a monument for himself. And in this monument, it had a statue of himself. And he was flanked by his parents on one side and Olympias and Alexander on the other, which clearly set out Alexander as his heir. Um, he also, you know, Alexander was the second leading commander of his army, often leading the companion cavalry, the, the leading elite cavalry of, of their army. So, you know, Philip was making every effort to assure Alexander, no, you are my heir. And even after this incident, Philip is gracious and invites Alexander home after a few months. He may or may not have personally really forgiven Alexander. There's no way to know. But in any case, before he could leave for Asia and in this invasion of Persia, he, he needed his heir to be around. He needed to have a clear heir in case he died on campaign. Complicating their relationship was the fact that Cleopatra, this new wife of Philip, was pregnant by the end of the year and she would end up giving birth to a boy. Philip could make every assurance that he wanted to Alexander, but the fact of the matter was, if the boy grew up and reached adulthood and was of sound mind and sound body, there was a good chance that he could contest Alexander for the throne. He was Macedonian on his father's side and his mother's side, very illustrious ancestry. He'd have a power base because of his family that was related to Attalus. And so Alexander sees this, and it's kind of understandable that he would feel some suspicion and some paranoia. Um, we can tell that he was on edge because he unnecessarily upsets his father. Once again, Philip was arranging a marriage between an Anatolian king and Alexander's older brother, the disabled Aridaeus, 
And Aridaeus, you don't hear about him because we don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but it appears that he had some mental disability and they were quite kind to him. They just, you know, kept him out of the limelight. So he was around, but not anyone important. And uh, but Alexander sees Aridaeus getting married to this princess and he gets jealous and sends his own envoy to this Anatolian king and says, what, you want to marry, you want to marry your daughter to the disabled kid? Why marry him when your daughter can marry Philip's true heir, me, Alexander? And a word gets back to Philip, who is livid, once again, understandably. His own son is interfering in foreign affairs. Philip calls off the original marriage and gives Alexander a talking to and basically says, what are you doing, man? You're my heir. You're going to marry someone really important someday, some Macedonian princess or some Greek or Persian noble, not the daughter of some insignificant king in the middle of nowhere. Alexander is appropriately chastised, and Philip banishes a few of Alexander's close friends who he thought that had kind of, you know, egged him on, and once again confirms Alexander's status as heir to the Macedonian throne. So 336 BC is the pinnacle year of Philip's achievement. He's going to see his daughter married, and uh, confusingly, his daughter's name is Cleopatra, okay? Not his wife, Cleopatra, but he also has a daughter named Cleopatra, and she is going to marry the king of Epirus, whose name is Alexander. Again, not his uh, son, Alexander, but technically his brother-in-law, Alexander. So this marriage, in part, is kind of an olive leaf to Alexander and his mother, Olympias, because he's marrying one of his daughters to basically someone from Olympias' family. So this is kind of cementing their place in court with Philip. And so he's going to make this wedding a really big deal, right? It's not just a wedding. It's his last major public event before he goes off to war to conquer Persia. So it's going to be the big thing. He makes a big festival of it. There's going to be theater. There's going to be games. There are going to be athletic competitions, everything. Um, before this all happens, he goes to the Oracle of Delphi and asks if the omens are good for his invasion of Persia. The Oracle replies, wreathed is the bull. All is done. There is also the one who will smite him. And Philip feels comforted, thinking that the king of Persia is the bull, and he is the one who will smite him. Uh, the last thing is is the wedding. Now, I need to give a little background before the wedding, and I've got to issue my first ever content warning for what comes next. If you've got children, you might not want them to hear this next part. It involves some some pretty nasty, gruesome stuff. So be warned. If you've got kids in the car, you might just want to shut it off now and turn it back on when they're not around. Okay, so uh, background. King Philip had very few bodyguards, and this was a point of of pride for him, right? He was a man of the people. Unlike the king of Persia, who always had this big retinue, you know, Philip was a man, right? And he could protect himself. So he only needed these few seven bodyguards to, to help protect him. One of these bodyguards was a man named Pausanias, a young man. Uh, Pausanias had a really strange story. So another young man named Pausanias, right? I told you the stories would be confusing, but stick with me. So this other young man named Pausanias had been the lover of Philip. And we'll call him Pausanias I. In the Hellenistic world, it was very common for older men to take adolescents as lovers. So, yeah, sorry, this whole time, Philip was a pedophile. <laughs> so was everyone in Greek society. Uh, that's just, that was very common for the time. No one would have thought that this was wrong or looked at it askance. But, however, as Pausanias I aged out of his boyish good looks and into adulthood, Philip lost interest, as was normal. Uh, it was not normal for adult men to have uh, sexual relationships it was just viewed as something that was appropriate between an older man and a, a younger boy. Um, so Philip loses interest in Pausanias I and instead took up an affair with another young man who we will call Pausanias number two. So Pausanias I took offense to this 
and insulted Pausanias number two, saying that he was a slut uh, and as much a woman as a man. The second Pausanias was very much grieved by these insults. They were being whispered around court and decided to prove his manliness by throwing himself into the most dangerous part of a battle where he was killed, thereby proving in death that he was a man and, uh, and that these insults that were being said about him were not true. Attalus, a powerful Macedonian nobleman, was a friend of the dead Pausanias and heard his plan. And so he was enraged at Pausanias number one for causing his death. So he invited him to a party, intentionally got him pass out drunk, physically abused him, and then gave him to the stable boys who gang raped him. Attalus made no attempt to conceal that it was he who had done this. And in fact, fired the flames, right? He was spreading the rumors because he was so mad at this Pausanias. And so he was letting everyone know that this young man had, had been abused and raped. Pausanias I complained of this to Philip and wanted redress, but Philip was about to leave on campaign. He could not risk offending one of his most important and powerful nobles. So he tried to mollify the boy by expressing his sympathy and promoting him to the position of royal bodyguard. But the boy's feelings were not assuaged. He stewed, and soon his anger turned toward Philip. Soon, he made a plot to get his revenge on the king. As Philip entered the theater during his moment of triumph, uh, during these opening ceremonies to this wedding, Pausanias quickly ran up to him, thrust a dagger between his ribs, and then ran off. Philip's heart was pierced, and he died within just a couple of minutes. Three other bodyguards caught up to Pausanias as he ran and quickly killed him. Of course, suspicion would soon turn to Alexander and his mother Olympias. He stood the most to gain from Philip's death. He would now be king. His would-be rivals were dead within a fortnight. And Alexander would be able to prosecute Philip's glorious conquest of Persia himself. It's possible that Alexander recruited Pausanias or perhaps just fueled the flames and talked to him and got him a little more riled up and angry at Philip. It's also possible that Pausanias was just a jilted lover who was angry at horrible abuse and killed Philip for his own reasons. You know, we'll never know. When Philip lay dying, it was Alexander who was by his side, who looked into his face as Philip drew his last breaths. And I can't help but wonder what Philip saw when he looked into Alexander's eyes. Were they the still silent eyes of someone who held a great secret? Or were they the eyes of someone who was an aggrieved son who couldn't believe that he was watching his father die in his own hands. We, uh, of course, will never know. And in some ways, I feel like it's one of those optical illusions. I can look at it one way and, and think, yeah, this is definitely it. And look at it another way and think, no, no, no. It's definitely the other way. But we will explore all of that and much more. The childhood conquest of Persia of Alexander, all coming next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to How to Take Over the World. 